tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. As any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church, that's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. Hmm. <laughs> it's Lent, and uh, I should be in a, an appropriately grim mood, but I'm not <laughs> not grim at all today. I'll work on it. I'm sure by the time I'm done with the show, we'll all be grim. But let's pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit. It shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same Spirit to have right judgment in all things, and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, let's, let's go to the big book on the coffee table. There's lots to talk about today. Let me look at my watch. Listen fast, because I gotta put a lot in this. Um, the the uh, uh, golly, the first reading. Well, that's kind of just you know pretty much. I don't know. It says what it says. But let's go to the second reading because there's something very interesting, and I have a harebrained theory about it that I think is wrong, but I'll share it anyway. I've heard something better. This is 2 Corinthians, the 5th chapter, the 20th verse. There's the, there's the salt shaker, wisely shaken. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin, who did not know sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Whoa. He who did not know sin became sin? What does that mean? Well, my theory on it is this. The word sin in Greek is hamartia, which means to miss the target. It means failure. And I've shared with you, you know, I keep coming to confession every week. Bless me, Father, for I've sinned. And I confess the same old sins. You know, if you if you realize, and I'm not saying change the, the formula for confession. Use the formula that, that, that is expected where you are. But when you think about it, you're saying, bless me, Father, for I have failed. Well, that's eminently true. I have failed to be the friend. I have failed to be the parent. I have failed to be the, the son or daughter. I have failed to be the spouse. I have failed to be the, I've failed to be the priest I should be. I, I mean, it's, it's and you know, you look at, at, at Adam and Eve in the garden, and, and the Lord came to them and said, why did you eat the fruit which I told you not to eat? And Adam said, Eve, she made me do it. <laughs> You know, and Eve said, the devil made me do it. I wonder what would have happened. They said, Lord, I've sinned. Please forgive me. We might all still be in paradise, but I, I don't know. 
that's the point. We've been denying responsibility uh, uh, since the beginning. Cain said after he killed Abel, and the Lord says, where's your brother? He says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? It's not my problem. We we like to, we don't want to say it's my fault. And that's exactly what the confession of sin is about. For our sake, he made him to be failure who did not know failure. If you think of it that way, he made him to be missing the target, who did not know how to miss the target, that we might become the very righteousness of God. And what is righteousness? Again, I, I tell you this all the time because it took me so long to figure it out. Um, that that righteousness, to be righteous, is to be godly. I, I shared that that once Rabbi Lefkowitz, I thought Rabbi Lefkowitz had said that God is the ultimate, a tzaddik is a righteous man, means his good deeds far outweigh his bad deeds, and that God is the ultimate tzaddik because all his deeds are righteous. And when I, I mentioned that to the rabbi saying he'd said that, he said, I never said that because that would be anthropomorphizing God. So I have to throw that in. But I think for our purposes— since we believe that God chose to appear in human flesh uh, and took on our human nature, that we can say that, that, that God is the ultimate righteous being, and righteousness is to imitate God. And what are the qualities of righteousness in God? Justice, which includes generosity and kindness. Those seem irreconcilable the way we think about justice, but they're not. So we, we become the very image of God. That's We read that in, in St. Paul's letter to the Romans, those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God, and our goal is to be conformed to the image of Christ. That's what's going on in our spiritual lives. That's what, what this is all about. It isn't just about getting what we want from out of God. So what does it mean he became sin? Well, I thought that, but then I read, and I think, well, one can read that into the text, but um, I read that in the temple, a sin offering was often just referred to as sin, a cheth. Uh, 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 I think the word for sin is cheth in Hebrew. It means the same as hamartia in Greek, to miss the target. He became, he became a sin. In other words, a sin offering. He didn't know sin, but he became a sin offering. Actually, historically, I think that's probably more accurate. But I think mine is more, well, fun. All right, moving together. Um, uh, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. In other words, you can receive grace and waste it. So this idea, once saved, always saved, I just think it isn't biblical. But let us move on to the gospel. Take care not to perform righteous deeds. In other words, the works that God asks you to do in order that people may see them. Otherwise, you will have no recompense from your, your heavenly Father. I mean, we're not doing them for recompense. Well, if we are, we're doing them wrong. But there is a recompense from, from, from God that, that recompense is, is, is God's very nature, that, that when we do godly things, then the reward is God. I remember... Uh, friend of mine who was leading a prayer group, uh, and it was just like, it was just herding cats, and he was so discouraged. And I said to him, you know, when you've closed your eyes in death, you're going to open them and see Christ. And that's what you're doing them for. I remember that I told you the story about the minister who was helping dig foundations uh, for a new church building, and he was just trying to prove he was one of the guys. 
And all the guys went off to drink coffee, and his guy's getting mad, saying, Lord, I shouldn't have to do this, Lord, I'm the pastor and all this. And the the voice, the inner voice said, Bob, who are you doing this for? I'm doing it for you, Jesus. Well, then why aren't you enjoying it? In other words, we do it for the Lord. However, when we do it for the approval of men, uh, then, well, we don't grow in Christ. And we do that. And the word is actually misthon. It means pay. It means pay. We, you will be paid for your good deeds. There's a wage. So uh, I think it's important to understand that. All right, let's go back where I put the reading. Because there's just some words you need to hear in this. When you give alms, not if you give alms, but when you give alms, do not blow trumpet before you as the hypocrites do. I've told you this a thousand times. Play actors. Jesus is saying that was the common word for a play actor. You say, oh, yeah, my favorite hypocrite's appearing in a play downtown. I'm going to go. Are you want to join me? And it was that common word. It meant someone who was a play actor. And so often we are play actors. I'm, I'm sure you've, you've heard the story. It's a shame that, you know, Muslims don't recognize Jews and, and, and certain groups of Protestants don't recognize Catholics and most Christians don't recognize each other in a liquor store. It's a joke. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> See, thanks, Bart. I don't get it. Oh, I... Well, that's because you're in a liquor store all the time, Homer, moving along. So, um, you know, and this idea of blowing a trumpet, I don't know that that actually happened. Uh, but in the temple, there were these these things called trumpets. They were just kind of big funnels, and, and they were anchored in, in alms boxes, and you put your offering in the funnel, and it would go down into the, into the uh, donation box. So Jesus might have been making a, an indirect allusion to that. Uh, they they talk about what they threw in the trumpet. That might be, I don't know. I'm Again, I, I wasn't there. So don't be like the hypocrites. Don't be a play actor. And you know, the problem with hypocrisy is if you're a good actor, you really get into the role. You convince yourself. You know, if you're playing Blanche from a streetcar called Desire, you start talking with a southern accent. Uh, not that I've ever played Blanche in a streetcar called named Desire. But you get into the character. You convince yourself that you are Blanche Dubois or Hamlet or whoever you're playing. And it's a little irritating to those of us who are not thespians, which is a fancy word for actor. Uh, you're not a method actor, Father? I'm not a method actor. I got no method to my madness at all. Moving along, uh, that's method acting. That's that's I guess that's what that's called. So it just, meh, it just is... Uh, uh, you know, it, it, don't be an actor. Don't convince yourself that you're holy. Uh, you know, it, oh gosh, this is, let me look at the time. I, I'm good, I'm good. Uh, the, the, uh, in, in the screw tape letters, which I quote entirely too much, the devil, or C.S. Lewis, uh, putting words in the mouth of the devil, says that, you know, the enemy, meaning God, wants people to be holy. We want people to feel holy. doesn't matter if they feel holy, just so they aren't holy. We want people to feel generous. He wants them to be generous. You follow? That's, that's, we often think that if I don't feel it, it's not real. But no, it, often what is most real is what you do when you don't feel like it. I don't feel love. Well, that's a great opportunity to really love, to love in spirit and in truth. Uh, not just in, in feeling. And now I want to bang on this a little bit. When you fast, it's not if you fast. 
What's with the fasting? I mean, we all know how fasting works. We don't eat something and we're miserable and God looks at us and he sees we're miserable and he feels sorry for us. That's how fasting works, right? Not at all. God isn't like that. God is generous. So what's the point of fasting? Uh, the, the, the point of fasting, and, and, and uh, you know, I, I, I learned this from an exorcist. So uh, I'm, I'm sharing something kind of interesting, I think. You know, if we could see, like Roy Shulman went in his book, Honey from the Rock, his testimony, he wrote, and the classic, he wrote, Salvation is from the Jews. Roy Shulman, a convert to, the Christ, to Christianity from, from Judaism, his books are great stuff. He's a brilliant man. Um, he describes his conversion. And there was a day when, as I recall, the veil between our world of, of touch and taste and smell, the veil between our world and the real world, the spiritual world, is more real than this physical world. That veil became very thin for him. And... and uh, he was able to see. I'm so glad I can't see the spiritual world because I would be terrified to see the battle that's raging around us. St. Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians, it's not against flesh and blood we war, but against powers and principalities. And, and you know, C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letter says the devil goes about like a roar. Well, he riffs off the verse from Scripture. The devil goes about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He says that that the enemy looks at, at the human vermin as potential sons and, and lovers. We look at them as food prepared for the table, as cattle. The stronger will devouring the weaker. That's how the devil works. He devours us. The stronger will devouring the weaker. And fasting is an exercise of will, of free will. I can have that piece of cake, but I'm not going to. I'm going to offer it up. I'm going to say no to me. You understand what I mean? Fasting is an exercise in freedom. I can do this, but I'm not going to. I'm going to exercise my free will so that when the devil comes along with an interesting suggestion, I can say, no, God has told me that that isn't the right thing to do, and I'm going to trust God. I'm not going to trust the devil. Who would trust the devil? You understand what I'm what I'm ranting and raving about? Oh dear, I'm looking at the clock. Lent is an exercise in free will. Fasting is an exercise in free will, and and I'm so glad to see fasting coming back. More and more people I know try to avoid meat on Friday, and uh, you know the fast is fasting. The, the the abstaining is flexible. We must abstain from meat, and if we are of the proper age, uh, fast uh, on. Ash Wednesday and Good Friday. But the other day's optional. We can substitute other penances for it. However, I'm very happy to see the traditional uh, abstaining on Friday as a regular, or on a regular basis. We Catholics celebrate Good Friday every Friday, and we celebrate Easter every Sunday. That's abst abstention, abst to abstain from meat. Why? Because fish was the food of the poor in the old days. You got a line, a pole, and a hook, and you had dinner. Now fish is pricey, but it's the inconvenience of it, I think, that is, that is the exercise in self-discipline. Uh, uh, but fasting, Catholic fasting is very easy. We're not trying to impress anybody. 
We're just trying to exercise our free will. The traditional Catholic fast is one meal a day that may involve meat if you choose, except on Fridays in Lent. Um, but you eat essentially two snacks. Breakfast and lunch together should not be as large as dinner. So it's two snacks and one meal, nothing in between meals. Liquids, any liquids are fine. If you can go through a straw, it's okay. It's not arduous. Well, you know, I, I, you know I'm going to fast and really impress God. God is not impressed by fasting. God is very hard to impress. Trust me. Uh, I've tried. Uh, that, that Well, you know, the, the, the certain groups, they fast all day. And then the Jews, they eat nothing for 26 hours on Yom Kippur. That's impressive. We're not trying to impress God. We're trying to exercise a muscle, the muscle of our free will. Fasting is an exercise in freedom. And when we are free, we are able to engage in spiritual warfare. So fasting is equipping us for spiritual warfare and making us able to receive the gifts of God. As we read you know, in the Office of Readings from Isaiah today, they talk about the kind of fast that will be heard. And people read that and they say, well, God doesn't want us to abstain from food. He wants us to do all sorts of good things. Yeah, that's true. But no, he wants us to free those who are enslaved. And the person whom I most need to free from enslavement is me. I'm enslaved to my likes and dislikes, my passions, my desires, my temper. I'm, I'm a slave to those things. And when I fast, I'm exercising free will so that when the devil comes around and wants to take a bite out of me, he's going to find me tough and stringy and not, not food prepared for the table. Do you understand what I mean? Fasting is an exercise in freedom. And we do it because we desire Christ more than we, we desire even that, uh, that next meal. I will end this schmear with a story. It's told of St. John when he was an old man. I don't know if it's true. I wasn't there, but it's a good story. St. John was walking by the beach with some of his disciples, and a Roman soldier came up. And he said, I want to find God. And St. John... The beloved disciple, in his old age, took the man out. He said, follow me. He went out into the waves. The man thought he was going to be baptized. St. John held his head underwater till he was, he struggled and he struggled and he practically drowned. And finally, St. John, who was a tough old guy, a lot stronger than he looked from the, the stories we hear about him, he let the guy up and the guy, what are you trying to do, you crazy old man? And he said, when you want God, as much as you wanted that next breath of air, you'll find him. You see, that, that fasting, an exercise in freedom, an expression of the fact, if it's a fact, <laughs> that we want God more than we want that piece of cake. Some thoughts on fasting. Remember, it's not if you fast, it's when you fast. So, happy Lent. The, the Catholic fast is nothing that's going to kill anybody. One meal, two snacks. Simple. And nothing, nothing solid between meals. All right, we're going to go to a break. We'll come back with some letters. And uh, the phones are open at 888-914-9149. 888-914-9149. Today we'd like to thank Santi, who is listening in Maine for donating his 1983 Jaguar XJ6. 
You can join thousands of other listeners in donating old vehicles, trucks, boats, and RVs by visiting relevantradio.com slash car. That's relevantradio.com slash car. It's the most wonderful time of the year. With the kids jingle bell, not the jingle belling. With the kids, with the kids not yelling and fasting and and and, and crutching. The uh, uh, yeah, it's the most wonderful time of the year. It's the time when we get to slap the devil around by fasting and praying and all that sort of thing. And before I, I launch into letters, I, I think it was Jeannie called who who couldn't. Uh, stay on the line, but I just wanted to to answer the question because it was one of great importance. Her husband wanted to eat ramen noodles, and there's the tiniest bit of beef fat in. We looked at the USCCB site, and it seems to indicate that, yes, that drippings are not considered meat. A meal of meat is different than, you know, and I have a feeling in ramen, whatever beef drippings are there are so transmogrified, that's a fancy word for changed, that they are, don't even resemble meat chemically. So I would say, like chicken broth, that sort of thing. It's it's not the flesh of an animal. It's just the drippings of an animal. Yuck. So, Jeannie, yes, you may feed your husband ramen to the best of our knowledge. And if there's any, when we stand at the judgment seat of God, just point back in the line and say, he said it was okay. That's why St. James tells us that we shouldn't... Uh, we shouldn't all strive to be teachers. All right, moving along. Let's go to letters if I can find them. Let's. Oh, there they are. Okay, this is this is uh, uh, from. Uh, uh, does she want to be anonymous? No, this is Renee in Arizona. Do the words epistle and encyclical mean the same thing? They do not. The word epistle is from a Greek word epistelene, which means it's to send a message. So that's what it is, to send a message. An encyclical means something that's going around, like a, a cold. No, no, an encyclical letter is one that's meant to be, send this letter to the next church over. Now, it is thought that the encyclicals, or the epistles, were circulated around uh, the ancient world, that uh, um, they... they um, or circulate around an area, that they were circular letters, but they weren't meant to be that. They were specifically designed for a certain community and its problems. So that's what one is. An epistle is a message that's sent, and an encyclical is a letter that's meant to be read in a number of places, at least in their ancient sense. It's very interesting. Encyclicals, papal encyclicals, are a modern invention they they they're about oh I can't remember who sent out the first encyclical. It's about two hundred and fifty years ago. That the teaching papacy is kind of a new thing. It's uh it's uh, uh the the history of the papacy is an amazing thing. And and uh it's it's fascinating to study it. So at any rate, I'm easily amused. Moving along here. All right, this is from okay. Okay. Oh dear. This is from uh, 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 Rich in Los Angeles. He feels I'm responsible for his high blood pressure because I've taken a grain of salt. He's taken a grain of salt with everything I say. <clears throat> okay, let's see here. Well, we've got another one. Oh, I got some some letters I wanted to take care of in this other site. If I ah, there it is. 
Is that it? Yes, the, there it is. Okay. No. Okay. Okay. Oh, I've got it. I've got it. Really. I do. I really do. There. This is, um, uh, Margaret, this is, this is from Margaret. Why did Jesus descend into hell? Well, let us parse this. We find in St. Paul's first letter to, the, to Peter that he went to preach to the souls in chains. Is that first Peter, the third chapter? I think, I think that's it. But, um, the, he went to preach to the souls in chains, uh, in other words, there were people who did not have the opportunity to make covenant with God uh, uh, from Adam to Noah. So they were given a shot. And the word hell doesn't mean the place of eternal punishment. In Greek, the word was Hades, which means the, the realm of the dead. The place of punishment that the Greeks believed did exist was called Tartarus, and it was for the very bad. And oh, the the the, uh, the the Elysian fields were for the very good. Most of us just went to this kind of gray underworld, you know, meh, that um, you know where life was just eternally boring. Uh, that was called Hades, and that's the word in the text that that uh, the, Jesus went to preach to the souls in chains. He descended into the world of the dead. And they're beautiful, beautiful uh, Greek and Russian icons called the harrowing of hell in which Jesus is opening the graves and bringing out the people who didn't have the chance to, to make covenant with God. This is a very interesting thing because it is a biblical example of the post-death offer of salvation. Admittedly, it's in a very limited context in the Scripture. Only those people, I believe it was between Adam and Noah. I don't have the text in front of me. However, however, it is an example that would lead us to think that God, in his mercy and in his justice, in some way makes the offer of salvation available to all people. That's my thought on it. And I think that's kind of what Benedict XVI was saying. So there you go. Let me see. I got another one here. Okay, this is from Jennifer, and it's rather long, um, so I, I can only answer it in part. Um uh, she mentions the book When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Uh, I appreciate the, the author's unique perspective. Maybe God is not perfect. That's just ridiculous. Uh, it, it's, it's by, oh, who's, uh, dear voice of mine, was it Rabbi Kushner? Do you remember who wrote When Bad Things Happen to Good People? I think it was Rabbi Kushner. Who's a, a, a I don't think he's orthodox. Yeah, Harold Kushner. It's, it's, he's not orthodox. Uh, but... That's nuts that God is not perfect. We can't believe that. You see, what we know something that Rabbi Kushner doesn't know. We know the cross, and we know the redemptive power of suffering. Bad thing. Why do bad things happen to good people? You see the poster of, of some poor, starving child. How could God allow that to happen? You and I look at it, and we see suffering. God looks at it, and he sees love. That that suffering is not even the blink of an eye when contrasted with eternity. Not even the blink of an eye. But the love that that mother has for that suffering child is eternal. You know, in this veil of tears, this sad world, you know, we say that every time we say the rosary, weeping in this valley of tears. In this valley of tears, suffering is the price of love. If I didn't care about your suffering, I wouldn't love you. But when I see you suffering... It rips the heart out of me. 
When you see your child suffering, your spouse suffering, a parent suffering, someone you care about suffering, it, it rips your heart out. You, you want to give everything. That's love. We look at suffering and we see suffering. God looks at suffering and he sees love. Oh, that makes him a terrible sadist. No, it doesn't. Jesus, the very heart of God, entered into, um, you know, I hesitate to mention this, but there, I, I think there's an AP film on it, uh, the AP News Service, um, that uh, an artist in Spain using the Shroud of Turin has made the most amazing, it's almost terrifying, reproduction of the man of the Shroud. And it makes the entire question about the genuineness of the Shroud absurd. Who cares if it's genuine? It is the most amazing record of what Jesus went through. It's astonishing. Uh, um, can we, is that, yeah, I, Nick is saying that we can, we can post the AP, the AP reference. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's in Spanish, but it's the visual that's important. It doesn't. It's, so there's some English and it's some Spanish. It's just the reaction of people seeing this. I mean, I wouldn't show it to kids. I would not show it to kids. Um, but when you see what we believe God went through, God went through this. We say, how come people suffer? You shouldn't be suffering if God is. Is, is loving, well, how can we suffer? He suffered more than you and I. God suffered in the person of Jesus more than you and I ever ever would, ever will, ever have. Uh, and it was for love. It's just, you know, this this our religion is not a religion for sissies. So it's a religion for people who want to step up to the plate and love sacrificially. And, you know... Oh, here, let me, let me talk more about this. When you look at this, this very human and precise reproduction of the body that lay in the Shroud of Turin at one point, and there's no doubt that a human body lay in that shroud, you will think, can this be God? Can this be God? And the answer is yes. It's God. If you think God doesn't care about you, look at this. He went through that for you. Well, why can't he just make me happy? Because of love. I, I You know, when I talked about fasting, why fasting is all about freedom, as I said. And, and, and freedom, why is freedom so important? Because without freedom, there's no love. If I have to love you, I can't love you. Freedom is the one essential prerequisite for love. And God puts us in situations in which we say, God, where are you? I'm right here, says the Lord, waiting to see if you will love me, even in this difficult situation, and if you will love this person who's suffering. You understand that freedom is necessary for love. And if all our spiritual life is about the great stuff God can give and that he's going to save us from suffering— Go into a Catholic church and look at a crucifix. You know, uh, yeah. Oh, I'm I'm way off the track, and I'll I'll end with this. Um, a wonderful saint who worked for me, Margarita. She she was a, a Eucharistic minister, visitor to the sick, and the housekeeper, and she was a valiant and holy woman. 
We had a terrible tuberculosis uh, epidemic in Uptown, and we didn't give communion under both forms. And she thought, God would protect you. And I said, well, Margarita, have you ever walked into church and looked at the crucifix? God will protect you. You think he is not going to let you suffer after what his only begotten son went through? We're conformed to the image of Christ. Well, there's the image of Christ. And one more thought. When you take communion, that which appears to be bread and wine, which has become the flesh and blood of Christ, the glorified body of Christ, but also the suffering body of Christ. Remember, he had the holes in his hands when he rose from the dead. He carried the cross with him even in his resurrection. When you receive communion, if you look at that that clip from AP about this this reproduction of the man in the shroud, that's what you that's what you're taking into yourself. It's you know Lent important time to really understand what we're doing and why we're doing it. We're not doing it for the perks. We're doing it for love. All right, we're going to take a break. We'll come back with a word of the day. And um uh, and the phones are open at 888-914-9149. Join Father Rocky this September for a pilgrimage to Poland and Prague. You'll visit the lands of St. John Paul the Great, St. Faustina, Our Lady of Częstochowa, and the Infant Child of Prague. Seats are limited. Information at relevantradio.com slash Poland. That's relevantradio.com slash Poland. Oh, I suppose it's an all right song. The voice in my head said that this reminds him of his grade school Lenten masses. It does. <laughs> so... Uh, Oh, it's not a bad song. It is kind of a nice song. But, um, well, all right, let's move along here. Let's go to the word of the day. Well, in the, we, we see when, uh, when you give alms, the word alms is interesting. And it's a funny word because it's, it's a Greek word. It comes from the word for alms in Greek is elimosna which comes from eleos, which means mercy, uh, compassion. And when we say kyrie eleison, it's the verb form of the word original for alms. And the reason I mention this, the elimosin, you can see how the elim becomes alm. You know, I used to tell my students about the time and alcohol principle of language development. Time does over the long run for language what alcohol does over the short run, kind of slurs it and jams it together. So uh, languages become other languages. That's how the time and alcohol principle of language development is the mechanism by which languages slur into, you know, how Latin slurred into Spanish and French and Greek. And with the French, there was just a whole lot of wine. That's what they're moving along. The, um, uh, so Elimosa, you can see that ELM becomes alms. But the point that I want to make, whatever that may be, is... You know, we say, Lord, have mercy. Well, are you having mercy? You know, the giving of alms is the extension of mercy. And uh, to see the image of God in in uh, in the poor is, it's a real important thing. So 
If you're going to ask for mercy, it's smart to extend it because, as Jesus said, as you measure out, it's measured to you. You say, I want mercy, but I don't give mercy. You're saying to God, you don't want mercy. I've told you this about a thousand times at least, that God gives us, always gives us what we're asking for, not what we think we're asking for. If we ask for mercy from God but are not good to those who are in need, well, then we're not asking for mercy. All right, that pleasant thought. Let's go to phones. Yellow. The phones, by the way, are open at 888-914-9149. We do have quite a few lines open. 888-914-9149. Let us go to Mary from Zinzanati, as my grandmother would have called it. <laughs> hey there, Father. Hey there. What can I do for you, Mary? Zinzanati, I got it right. Do people still call it Zinzanati? Um, and in Oktoberfest, they do. Okay, good. Zinzanati. Yeah, they wear uncomfortable leather shorts, I imagine, too. Well, what can I do for you, Mary? If you've ever worn that, those are the most uncomfortable garments in the world. Well, moving along. We're not here to talk about later hosen. What can I do for you, Mary? So, as I, as I get um, older and closer to the goal, you know, my concern about, am I getting to the goal? You know, and I've read a lot about Fatima and the children in 1917 and one of the girls asked the blessed mother if her friend amelia was going to go to heaven and the blessed mother said she's going to have to have a pit stop in purgatory mm -hmm. until the end of time mm -hmm. so if a child in portugal in 1917 who's had no exposure to the garbage that we have ah. is going is going to purgatory like what chance do we have of even getting to purgatory much less heaven yeah, yeah, I'm sure that kid never saw, a, a, you know, a, a movie, a dirty movie. Are you are you a parent? Are, are you a mother? Yes. You know, children are not innocent. Thank God they're small. My earliest memory in life is my grandmother's funeral. I had just turned three. I mean, it's a clear memory. I have earlier memories, but are, they're just kind of sensory impressions. But this, I remember my emotions. And I was so awful the first night of the wake that I was not going to be brought to the second night of the wake. It was a two-night two wake. And I was left in the care of two of my cousins, uh, Liz and, and uh, Janice. And uh, when I saw my mother, coat and hat on, go through the door, and it was my uncle's house in Detroit, big glass pane, and I realized I was not going to the wake. I can remember the emotion. I was going to make them pay. And I had a tantrum. And I can see my, my mother's face to this day through that glass looking at her poor little baby who would miss her. I, I didn't miss her. I wanted to make her suffer. I remember this clearly. So the idea that somehow children are sweet and innocent, no, children are the original narcissists. I believe in original sin. And, and the process of conversion is coming away from sin. So, you know, uh, uh, not everybody agrees with me <laughs> on this point, but children are capable of real sin. And, of course, they're capable, we believe, of entering into that sin only with the age of reason. Now, let's talk about purgatory. Uh, 
purgatory, I, I, the, I, I've said that the most beautiful description of purgatory is in the last chapter of, of Screw Tape. Again, this is my third reference to the Screw Tape Letters. Screw Tape Letters by C.S. Lewis. And I believe that what purgatory is is standing before the light and love of God. And the great difference between hell and purgatory is that in purgatory there's hope. And there's a, a joy. If You know, uh, we grow in purgatory in the love of God. And, and uh, you know, you got to understand that, that the visions of mystics are not part of the, 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 um, uh, the deposit of faith. Um, however, I think that they are cautionary tales that we need to really uh, do our best to, to avoid even venial sin. Uh, but on the other hand, we count on the mercy of God. Jesus would not have died on the cross uh, simply to to make us jealous of those few who go to heaven. I, I have no idea if heaven is heavily populated or not heavily populated, but I know that God does not will the death of a sinner, and he wishes all to be saved, and he's done his level best to save us. So I would I would work at trusting the mercy of God and and really trying to to pray fervently that the Lord point out to me where I need to be growing. So I don't know if that helps a little. Uh, you know, that nobody wants you in heaven more than God does. Does that help a little? Well, let me point out it wasn't a mystic. The children said it was from the Blessed Mother herself. Well, that's and a mystic yes, saying it was from the Blessed mercy, Mother. But... Remember, that wasn't, that was, that was a, a, a St. Paul says clearly in 1 Corinthians that our, we prophesy in part. And, you know, I, one of my most powerful religious experiences was Fatima. I love Fatima. But Lucia fell when the sun is falling and 60,000 people. I know two people. I know one person and I know the children of another person who saw the, the, the sun dancing in the sky because of Fatima. Uh, so I believe in Fatima. I think it was a, a great moment. But Lucia, when the sun is falling, she fell to her knees and said it's the end of the world. She was wrong. You know, that, that, that I think, you know, you have to respect Scripture on this and, and understand that, that, that a Portuguese seven-year-old said this is what the Blessed Mother said. You know, she got it from the Blessed Mother herself. Okay, She's, that's what she heard. And, and you know, I, all you can do, Mary, is trust the mercy of God and trust that God himself wants you in heaven more than more than you can imagine. And you cooperate with the grace of God. You say, Lord, and you go to confession regularly and, and receive the sacraments. I, I think you you gotta you gotta trust the mercy of God. And if you don't, Mary, uh, you'll go nuts. You know, uh, if God is not merciful, then why why did Christ go to the cross? Why did why did he undergo that? Go to the website and see this image of what, what Jesus went through. I hope that helps a little, Mary. God bless and, and trust God. Rose in Los Angeles, what can I do for you? Good afternoon, Father Time, and I'm so happy to be speaking to you. Well, I'm uh, happy to be speaking to you. It's an honor. <laughs> okay. I'm 84 years old, Father, and I really have been so grateful to have had you and to listen to you clarify so many things that I've pondered over the many years reading the Bible, and I'm a convert to the faith, 62 years. Mazel tov. 
<laughs> oh, thank you. One of the things that popped into my head yesterday, question for you. Did Adam and Eve have children after, in the garden, in the garden, before Eve was tempted by Satan? Were they already in the garden? Do we have some something about that, that they were there, they already had children, and then Satan came in and tempted Eve at that point? The the overwhelming opinion of people who thought about this would say no, they did not have children before they fell, because that child would not have inherited sin. Sin is an inheritance, grace is a gift. So the answer to that is probably no. I wasn't there, but it seems that the, the children of sequentially in Scripture, the children of Adam and Eve are mentioned only after their expulsion from paradise. That that would be my opinion, too. Does that help a little? Yes, it does, Father. And I have learned so much. You can just, I just want to say that no matter how much older we become, we can certainly grow if we are listening to someone who has the spirit that you have. Well, and you've given me so many ways to look at aging and, and as you spoke to the earlier person, Trust in God's mercy. Trust in God's mercy. And I, I love that. And I well, thank you. And God bless you too, Father. Well, thank God. you. God bless you. Thank you. You've been so kind. Happy I should say the check Ash- is in the mail. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> no, it's very, very happy kind. Happy Ash Wednesday to you. And happy St. Valentine's yes, Day. Yes, yes. Happy St. Valentine's Day. That's true. There you go. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks so much okay. for calling in, Rose. God bless you. I'm honored that you listen. Let's, thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Let's go to Jeff. Jeff, what can I do for you? Hello, Father. You there? I'm here. Okay, um, I have a, a real basic question. I understand what Lent is all about in Ash Wednesday, the 40 days of fasting, my yes, yes. six days, Sundays. But my question is, what is the significance of the ashes? themselves well it's it's interesting it it's 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 very it's very biblical uh, um that they would sit in they would cover themselves with ashes that bathing is a luxury and and they're too preoccupied <laughs> they're too preoccupied even to to bathe that's the idea and it's it's a very biblical thing but I think the old words that we use and you know now they love to use fancy schmancy words like repent and believe the gospel and all We've said, remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. I think that that's an important uh, dimension of it. So ashes uh, um, have always been used uh, to a good grief. Hold on, I'm just, my computer has just uh, become irritating. Uh, But yeah, ashes have always been used biblically as a symbol of, of sorrow, repentance, that sort of thing. But Ash Wednesday is actually kind of a late custom in terms of uh, uh, in terms of um, the history of the church. Uh, so the, the 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 use of ashes as a sign of repentance that goes way back before Ash Wednesday. That, uh, for instance, Tertullian, who's the father of the church, uh, uh, said, and he lived about 160 A.D. Uh, he got into a strange group, but they, he said some good stuff anyway. He said that uh, 
the confession of sin should be accompanied by lying in sackcloth and ashes. Sackcloth is the cloth that you use to make bags. It's burlap. Uh, and uh, we read about uh, repentant sinners. Uh, this is from Eusebius of of Caesarea, who's, you know, like 260 to 340. He's, you know, around 300. That, that uh, when someone was repenting, uh, uh, he covered himself with ashes. That's the idea that I'm, I'm uh, the significance of ashes is that I'm going to, uh, I'm going to die. I'm, I'm, I'm weak. I'm just made out of burnt up carbon. And the, the Ash Wednesday, uh, um, um, Custom started well, really in in uh, of using ashes on on the first day of of Lent. Really started in the Middle Ages. Does that even come close to answering your question, Jeff? Well, it does. Um, yes, and I know it was mentioned in the book of Daniel. I can't remember the chapter and verse right yeah. now. Yeah, they, they referenced ashes there too. But so essentially, it's just prayer, fasting, and alms, and ashes represent. Yeah, ashes, it represents the confession of our weakness. We admit weakness, sinfulness, and mortality. And speaking of weakness and mortality, this show is ending, but Drew's is coming up. And he's going to pray the Divine Mercy Chaplet with you. I think that, that, you know, Sister Faustina, Saint Faustina, talked a great deal about God's mercy, especially at the hour of death.